But let's go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at verse 10. The last week we did verse 9, and the week before was verse 8. So this is part 3. Paul Beckman said that Ephesians 5.10 is one of his favorite verses in the Bible. He's been waiting, haranguing me for three months or two months. Uh, when are we going to get to? When are you going to hurry up and get to Ephesians 5:10? So, Paul, here we are. Ephesians 5:10. So I'll let you get there and get your hand out there ready. But just to bring you up to speed, because some of you haven't been with us, or you've been away, or you're here for the first time. Just so you know, nine and a half months ago we started in the book of Ephesians at verse one, and now we're heading towards the end of the book, chapter five, and it's. Christianity 101, as Paul talks to the church, so we thought we could learn many lessons as we are a part of a church plant. We want to do things God's way, and Ephesians has been a wonderful model of how to do that, to do things, to do church, to live the Christian life God's way. In the first three chapters, Paul talks about doctrine, theology, teaching, and then in the last three chapters is practical application, the things he talked about in the first three chapters. Um, so chapters 4, 5, and 6 is about applying the Christian life, applying it individually and applying it corporately, uh, not just in your local church, but also in your family life. And we're going to see that as well. So this is all about practical application, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And that's why in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul keeps telling Christians to do. Do this, do this, don't do that, do this. So we're just going to hear that repeatedly. These are called commands or imperatives. There's over 40 of them in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and we've got more imperatives in chapter 5. And basically what he's saying is if you are a Christian, you profess to be a Christian, you've been saved by Jesus, then you should live like a Christian. Pretty simple, right? If you say you're a Christian, then live like one. And he tells us how a Christian should be living and how a church should be functioning, anybody that professes to know Jesus Christ. So we are in chapter 5, and in verses 1 through 17 is actually a unit that goes together. And Paul makes a contrast that we should specifically being... We should be living a different way than the world lives. We should be living differently than unbelievers. There should be a contrast in our life if you're a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you're out in society, you should be living among society, but there should be a stark contrast between the way you live your life and how you think compared to those around you who are not Christians. As a result, you should shine like light. There should be a difference. It shouldn't be a surprise or a secret to anybody around you where you work or where you live or in your neighborhood that you are a Christian that you're different, that there's something different and unique about you. And Paul's metaphor here, to remind the Christian, you need to live differently for God's glory. He says, you need to live like light. You need to walk in the light. You need to be light. You need to shine with Christ's light, His truth, in a dark, sinful, lost world so that you can make a difference. And So it's a command that we need to live out in the world. We need to infiltrate the sinful world. And at the same time, we're not supposed to partner with the world. Okay? So we go, we infiltrate the world, but we don't imitate the world. That's one of his themes here. And so we're talking about, in the last, this will be the third week, we've been talking about that fine balance of, as Christians, how do we infiltrate society and integrate with unbelievers, yet not live like them or engage illegitimately like them? Where are the boundaries? So we live holy lives in their midst. That's not an easy thing to do. And many, many difficult decisions need to be made as a Christian, Right? As you interact in the world, should I go to this wedding? Should I go to this party? Should I go to this family event? Should I engage in this social activity? Should I go to this club at my school? Should I go to this class? So on and so forth. That a Christian has many decisions to make to preserve God's command that we be light. 
and shine and interact with the world. And at the same time, in chapter 5 where he talked about we also need to separate from them. We can't be partakers with unbelievers and sinful things in the world. So how do we live in a lost and sinful society? And one of the metaphors that I keep using as a Christian, well, this is what the Bible says, you're supposed to be in the world but not of the world, right? Our boat is in the water but we don't want water in the boat. So there's that fine balance. And so Paul really helps us out in thinking this through. Where are the boundaries for Christians as they live in a lost and sinful society? And just by way of summary that we talked about, um, I'm going to read verse uh, 6 through 10. Paul, just to remind us, Paul said to Christians, let no one deceive you with empty words about the sinful world and sinful people. For because of these things, the sinful things that they do, and because they don't know God, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God is angry with sin. Therefore, Christian, do not part, be partners with them. Do not collaborate with the world or sinners. Why? Verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, just like them. You used to be lost and sinful, but now you are light in the Lord. You got saved. You're different, so live differently. And here's the main command in this passage. Walk as children of light. That's what we're thinking about and talking about today. How do we walk as children of light? How do we live the Christian life in a sinful world? Verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's what should typify our lives, those attributes, the fruit of our life for walking in the light. And then verse 10, trying to learn what please what is pleasing to the Lord. So as you live this life, Christian, in the midst, rubbing shoulders against sinners, priority number one, that you need to keep in mind in decision-making and your motivation of why you do the things you do is to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So that's the text we're going to look at today, that verse, verse 10. Christian, as a children of light, live your life in such a way that you are always guided by the dominant thought of trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Depending upon your English translation, it's translated in different ways, but it means the same thing. The New American Standard says, Christian... Live in such a way, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The King James Version says, live in such a way, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. Uh, the English Standard Version says, and try to discern. That means you need to think, be a critical thinker, what is pleasing to the Lord as you live your life. The NIV says, find out what pleases the Lord. And then the New King James, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So they're all similar with different nuances. But what I call this in point number four of my overall summary in the series is this is the motivation for walking in the light. The motivation for walking in the light. In other words, Christian, why do you do what you do? Why do you think the way you think? What is the basis of your decisions in daily living? Why do you do what you do? Well, what I'm talking about now, I'm getting at the motives, your motivation. Why do you do what you do? Why do you go to church? Why do you raise your children the way that you do? Why do you study the Bible? Why are you so narrow-minded? Why do you offend people? So we're getting at the motivation of the Christian life. What motivates us to live the Christian life and make the decisions that we do and to be light in a sinful world? Very important. This is the ultimate question the motivation of the decisions that we make in life. And that's what I want to look at. What is our motivation? Uh, so if you flip to side two of that worksheet there, on pleasing the Lord as the motive for living, number three, and then roadblocks to pleasing the Lord, let's look at the Christian's motivation for living the Christian life. 
how we can live like light and why we live like light in a dark world. And Paul just simply says, keeping in mind that you always need to be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That is the ultimate question. That should be your driving passion. That should motivate you in every area of life, every decision you need to make. In your personal life, how you spend your time, how you spend your free time, how you spend your family time, how you spend social time, it all needs to be gauged and screened through this ultimate question of, why do you do what you do? And that is, for the Christian, is because we are always trying to please the Lord. That's our motivation. I just want to stop for a second and think about that phrase. This is amazing. Christian, always try to do what is pleasing to God. Pleasing. That's kind of, that has a positive nuance to it, doesn't it? Pleasing. Pleasing means joyful, happy, smiling. I mean, is that really how you, is that how you view God? When I say the word God... What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Because if you say that in the world, many times you say, what is God like? Some of the, you know, the first attributes are things that come into the mind of many people. When they think of God, they think of stern, scowl, mad, angry, judge, old man who's cranky. Serious. And here the Bible says that, no, actually, God also can be pleased. God can have joy. How often do we think about that? God is the judge. God does get mad at sin. But there needs to be a proper balance there. God can also have joy. There are things that please God. We are miserable, pathetic sinners, every one of us, whether you're a Christian or not. That's what the Bible says. But if you're saved, the Bible says you can please God. Isn't that amazing? A sinner can please a sinless, holy God. We can do things in life that actually please God. It's possible. So we need to be talking about that. How do we please God? You mean we can please God? How refreshing. That is awesome. What a great motivation to think that there are things you can do, decisions you can make in this life that actually please the almighty creator of the universe. You can bring him joy. What a great motive for living. How is that possible? Well, because God is father. And if you're a Christian, you are his child. First and foremost, you are in the family of God. If you are a Christian and you know Jesus personally, that God is your father and you're in his family. So it's no different than the earthly family that you have. And if you're a child, you can please your parent, can't you? It's the same thing. You can bring your parents joy. You can actually please them by decisions you make and the things that you do. The same is true for the Christian in terms of their relationship to God. That is the distinctive of biblical Christianity. That's the distinctive of our motivation of why we live the life that we do, why we make the decisions that we do, because we can actually please God. Some of you are familiar. You know, uh, when somebody becomes a Christian... I hear it often said that when somebody becomes a Christian that the angels are rejoicing up in heaven. There's a party up in heaven with the angels and they're celebrating every time somebody becomes a Christian. Now, I'm sure that's probably true. I would imagine that the angels probably are up in heaven celebrating. But one thing I don't hear frequently enough is more than just the angels are celebrating up in heaven when somebody gets saved. I almost never hear this. And they they are referring to, you don't need to turn there, but just listen. They are alluding to this passage in Luke 15 where Jesus tells several parables of how uh, how much excitement and joy there is up in heaven when a sinner repents and gets saved. So he gives three parables on salvation and how people up in heaven, somebody up in heaven gets excited. Now listen to verse 7. So Jesus tells a parable, something's lost, uh, something is found, and then they rejoice that they found it. And then Jesus says in Luke 15, 7, I tell you that in the same way that there's joy, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous person 
who need no repentance. So Jesus says when somebody gets saved, there is tremendous joy in heaven. Now, does it say that the angels rejoice in that passage? No. But somebody in heaven is rejoicing. Verse 10, he gives another parable and then he concludes it by saying, and in the same way I tell you, there is joy, now listen carefully, in the presence of the angels of God. Oh, it doesn't say the angels are rejoicing. There is joy in the presence of the angels. Who's rejoicing? It's God the Father is rejoicing every time a sinner gets saved. Did you know that? God the Father is rejoicing and celebrating every time someone gets saved. The moment you got saved, when I got saved, there was a party in heaven and God was hosting it. He was rejoicing in heaven. That's what the verse says. And Jesus brings this home emphatically in the next parable of the prodigal son. Because the dad sees the sinning son off. The sinning son repents. And then he starts coming back home. And then Jesus says that the father who was... uh, in front of his house and saw his son coming back from a far distance away. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw the prodigal son. The father felt compassion for the sinful son and the father ran. He had a robe. He had to pull up his robe. He ran. He embraced his sinful son and he kissed him through a party. And it says there was much joy and rejoicing. In the parable, who was the father? God. So it's not just the angels are rejoicing. Almighty God Himself is rejoicing. The point is, Paul is right in Ephesians 5 when he says that we can indeed please the Father. We can please the Creator. We can, we can bring Him joy. There are things that bring God joy. That is the greatest motivation to live for Him in this life. It's awesome. It's a great truth. So let's go back to Ephesians 5 and look at the practical implications of this of living in such a way, conducting our lives in a way that will please God. Our Creator, and if you know Him, your Savior. So let's look at uh, number three and four on the handout there. The first point there is pleasing the Lord as the motive for living. We have a unique motive for our, our faith and doing what we do. Why is our motive unique? Well, letter A. I already said this. This motive of seeking to please God in everything that we do, it is a distinctive of biblical Christianity. The fact that we serve our God, know our God, and we want to serve Him by pleasing Him is unique among all the religions of the world. It is unique of biblical Christianity. That is not the driving motivation and force of the the other religions of the world. It's not first and foremost, they're not telling their people, you need to obey God and do this and do that primarily because you need to please God. They don't say that. That's not a part of the basic DNA of their religion, but it is for Christianity. So the first point is, this is a unique distinctive of Christianity. Here's the specifics of why it is unique. Look at point B. This idea of our driving motivation to please God in everything we do, it is antithetical to legalism. That's the first point. It is antithetical to legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is just giving priority to obeying the law, the letter of the law. You're just focused in myopic and concerned about, did I fulfill all my the letter of the law and crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's and do my little checklist? That's legalism. Now, you can be an unbeliever and be a legalist, and you can be a Christian and be a legalist. I've pastored in legalistic churches. It's, it's horrible. It is smothering. It is no fun. There's a lack of joy. It's sinful, it's wrong, it's unbiblical. Jesus hated legalism. That's why I want to read Luke Luke 18. Now, the quintessential legalists in the days of Jesus' time were the Pharisees. They were the Jewish religious leaders, the guardians of the Old Testament Scriptures, the teachers of the law, the ones who were supposed to know the true God, but the Pharisees 
didn't because they got away from the basics of Scripture and they caved into legalism, which was taking Scripture and twisting Scripture. And legalism is also taking man-made human laws and raising them to the level of importance of Scripture. That's what legalism is. It takes Scripture and pulls it down and smothers it. And it takes man-made religion and man-made rules and raises it up to the level of importance with Scripture. That's legalism. And you're always checking on your checklist. Oh, I did this and I did that and I did this. And oh, aren't I impressive? And that's why I put there, uh, legalism has to do with how you view yourself. And usually if you're a legalist, you have an inflated view of self. You're proud of yourself. You're tr- you think you can impress God with your legalism. I did this and this and this and this and this and this. Look at God. Look at me, God. And here's the perfect example. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus tells a, a story and he's condemning legalism and he's condemning the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of the law who were legalistic in terms of their religion. And in Luke 18, starting at verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to certain ones in the audience. Jesus was courageous and brave told the parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves. See, the inflated view of self. They weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in themselves. Trusting in themselves that they were righteous. They were acceptable in and of themselves before God. God should be impressed with them. That's what they felt about themselves. And notice, they viewed others with contempt. That's a legalist. You look down your nose condemning everybody else. That's what a legalist does. And you can be a Christian Legalist, it is a sin you need to repent of. They viewed others with contempt. Now, this is hilarious. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. So they're out in public. They're going to the temple for prayer time. Two men. One a Pharisee. He's the legalist. The other a tax gatherer. He's a pathetic, lowly, undeserving sinner. Kind of like me. Verse 12. Oh, wait. Verse 11. The Pharisee, the legalist, stood out in public, mind you, probably his chest in the air, and was praying. Notice who he's praying to. Thus to himself. This guy was praying to himself. And said what? God. He's praying to himself and says God. And notice his prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this pathetic tax collector over here. What a terrible, horrible, pathetic prayer. That's what he did. Then he gives a litany of all the things he does to please God. His legalism. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Wow. That did not impress God. It didn't impress Jesus. Verse 13. But the tax gatherer, he was a sinner. He worked for the IRS. He was the scum of society. He had no business being in the temple or near God. The Jews believe there was no forgiveness for a tax gatherer. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away from the temple, notice the proximity of him to the temple of God. The temple was the presence of God. The Pharisee is right next to him. He is in the immediate presence of God. He thinks he has total access to God. Uh, the tax gatherer, on the, hand, on, the, on the other hand, has some semblance of guilt, and he feels like he can't even be that close to God. I don't even know if God will accept me or like me or love me or listen to me. So he is way far away from the temple, way from God. Standing some distance away from the temple, he was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. That is a sign of humility. He's just kind of cowering with his head bowed like that. Where's the Pharisee, remember? Praying thus to himself. Not even willing to lift his eyes, lift his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast. Mourning, guilty, repenting. Notice the nature of his prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
Not a sinner. The sinner. The worst of all sinners. That was his prayer. Very simple. It had to do with his heart. Not the articulation of his words. God knew his heart is what mattered. Verse 14. Jesus concludes and says, I tell you, this man, the tax gatherer, this man went down to his house justified, forgiven of sin, saved. Did you know that's the only time that word justified is used in the Gospels? The only time. Paul uses it all the time in Romans. That word is never used except here. And forgiven, that's a legal declaration. God in heaven, when he heard that sinner's prayer, he pronounced him not guilty. You are innocent. On the spot. Instantaneous forgiveness of sin. Eternal life salvation. And what do you have to do to get it? Nothing. All he did was confess his sin. He didn't do one good work. He just confessed his sin to Almighty God and was saved. Justified in a moment of time. He went down to his house. Justified. Clean. Eternal life. Born again. Saved. In the family of God, rather than the other, the Pharisee who was a legalist, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus condemned and hated legalism. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. That doesn't please God. So when we're thinking about how can we please God, it's not through legalism, it's not through your little religious checklist. It's not elevating man's laws to scriptural demands. So that's an important distinctive. Um, Let's go on to letter C in terms of our motive for living for God. This idea of living to please God in all that we do, let us see it, is antithetical to works righteousness. We're not talking about doing good works here. Did you know that's man's system of religion all over the world? <clears throat> you could take Christianity on one side and take other, every other philosophy of, war, of, of the world and every religion of the world and put it on this side. And they all have one common denominator. Every philosophy and every religion that is not biblical Christianity has a common thread and a common denominator, and it is works righteousness. These people are trying to reach God through their own good works. Whereas the Bible says just the opposite. There is nothing we can do to reach God with our good works because our good works aren't going to do it. Our, Our good works in and of ourselves are like filthy rags. So what are we depending upon? We are depending upon Jesus' one good work to reach God. That's His death on the cross and His resurrection. That is the only way to reach God. It's based on Jesus' good work. Every other religion in the world and philosophy says, no, it's based on my good works and that, so that hopefully when I die and I stand before the Creator or the God or the Judge of the universe and He looks down at me and my goody pile is higher than my baddie pile, then hopefully just maybe if He's in a good mood on that day, He will let me into heaven. Really, that's what other religions and philosophies say. Works righteousness. That's why the Bible condemns it over and over and over again. It's not about works. You can't do anything. You can't get to heaven by doing the Ten Commandments. That's impossible because we can't fulfill the Ten Commandments. We can't do it. It's what Jesus did, not what we do. So we don't try to serve and make decisions and live uh, and serve our God based on trying to do good works. So that God might be impressed with our good works. Or or hopefully we can earn our salvation. And that God's going to tally up all of our points at the end and say, "Oh, Okay, you've got enough. Go ahead. Come on in. Okay, it's time to come out of purgatory. Come on in. It doesn't work that way. It's not by works righteousness. There's nothing we can do. It is by God's grace through faith based on the work of Jesus Christ. So check your motive for living. Are you trying to impress God with your good works or earn your salvation or appease Him? Ain't going to happen. By the way, that's what Islam does, the religion of Islam, the largest religion in the world. I'm going to speak a lot about Islam as long as I can because I don't know how long I'm going to have the freedom to speak about the truth of Islam in this country. 
there are Christians around the world getting killed for their faith and speaking out against Islam. But it is the largest religion in the world, the fastest growing religion in America, if you can believe it. But if you're a Muslim, you don't primarily conduct your life based on trying to please, in a good way, Allah. Basically, what you're trying to do is you live based on fear of Allah. Because when a Muslim dies and they stand before Allah, and Allah, and the question, you know, why should I let you into heaven? It's whether Allah is in a good mood or not. Whether He likes you or not. There is no objective basis for Allah to point to and say, well, such and such died and was a substitute for your sin and you believed in it, therefore come on in. There is no doctrine of salvation in Islam. It's based on the whim of some God called Allah. And so that's why Muslims, for the most part, they live in fear. They're driven by fear. So that hopefully they can appease this whimsical, capricious God. You don't know if you can appease or not when you die. And hopefully just maybe you might get into heaven. It's a scary thing to live life that way. Very burdensome. That's different than Christianity. Go to letter D. In light of this motive that we live our life to please God, that says that Christianity is not primarily a religion. When Paul says in Ephesians 5.10, Christian, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord is your greatest ambition and motive in life, tells me that Christianity is not primarily a religion. That's, Paul condemns man-made religion in Colossians 2.23. Some Christians thought that it was all about do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this, say this, don't say this. And they turn these rules into religious rituals and duties and routines that they need to do again and again and again and again because for some reason God is happy with that or pleased with that or it accomplishes something. And it becomes routine. It becomes mechanical. It becomes man-made religion. It becomes lifeless. It becomes linear that's not Christianity. But that is typical of every other false religion on planet Earth. It is religion. It is routine. It is do this and do that. And fill the quota. And many times it's mechanical. It's very impersonal. When was the last time you heard a Muslim say that he has a personal relationship with his Lord and Savior Allah? Or a personal relationship with his Lord and or his, his, uh, the Prophet Muhammad? They don't say that. Because they can't. That's why Christianity is unique. Christianity is not primarily a religion. That's the letter E. Christianity is primarily about a relationship. And that's the emphasis of, of, of Paul here in Ephesians 5.10. Learn to please the Lord in everything that you do. Only a person can be pleased, right? That's a human attribute. Only a person truly can be pleased. This tells me that God is a person. God is personal. God is intimate. God is a living being. A living soul. We can have a relationship with Him. So Christianity is primarily about a relationship. It is about knowing someone. That's the main thing in Christianity. So when you're out sharing your faith and talking to an atheist, you don't need to spend three hours trying to debunk the 99 false reasons that evolution is not true. That's not going to win them over. You need to talk about a personal relationship that they can have that can change their life, forgive their sins, Bring them into the family of Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, and they can have eternal life, and it is through a person, Jesus Christ. And did you know that you can know Jesus personally too? You need to emphasize the personal relationship that is available in Christianity because that is this distinctive of Christianity. That's what it's all about. It's a personal relationship. It's knowing the Creator of the universe. Think about that. If you are a Christian, you have a personal, intimate, ongoing, secure, eternal relationship with the Creator of the universe. What other religion or philosophy can say that? 
They can't. If you're a Christian, you have eternal life. What is eternal life? John 17, 3. Jesus defined eternal life. John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. What is it, Jesus? Doing good things, doing works, being legalistic, doing religion. This is eternal life. Knowing God. That's what it is. Knowing God the Father. That's The emphasis there is on relationship. And as a matter of fact, the word love, both in... Or knowing... The word know in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, many times the word know is synonymous with love or having a personal, intimate, loving, deep relationship with somebody. It's synonymous. Even way back in Genesis, uh, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew Eve, not intellectually, He had an intimate relationship with her on a personal level. And then in the New Testament, at the end, when it says in Matthew 7, when Jesus, at the end of the world, Jesus is going to judge every soul. And he says that there are going to be many on that day, on the judgment day, who say, Lord, Lord, did we not call out to you name and do miracles in your name and believe in you? And, uh, And Jesus is going to say to them, some of the ones who were not actually believers, and he's going to condemn them. And he says, and he, he, the climax of that, when he, before he sends them into eternal hell, he says, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. I didn't know you intimately. You never committed your life to me personally, is what Jesus is saying. So it's about knowing God, knowing God. Do you know God? That's why when you go out and talk to somebody, do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? How's your relationship with Christ going? How is your walk with Christ? The emphasis there is on a personal, intimate, dynamic, one-on-one individual relationship with the Creator and Savior of the universe. That is uniquely distinctive of Christianity. And all that comes from this idea that we can actually please God. We can please Christ. So go on to letter F. Jesus was the master, by the way, of making every decision in life. And the priority for Jesus was... Did it please his Father in heaven? Do you know, Jesus was perfect because he was God incarnate and he was sinless and he successfully managed to make every decision and do every deed in his 33 years of life in such a way that it always pleased the Father. So he set the example for us. He set the model. Every decision. Unbelievable. And that's John 6, 39. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. In other words, not to please myself but rather to do the will of Him who sent me, but rather to please the Father. That's what I do. That's how I live my life. That's how I conduct my business. That's why I make the decisions that I make. I seek to please God in everything. Jesus was the Master. Paul was also exemplary as an apostle. Now, he was a sinner and still was able to do this on a regular basis, and it was his burning passion. Did he fail? Yes, we all do. But he sought forgiveness, and it drove him. It was his motivation for living the Christian life, always seeking to please God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we, and he's talking about himself as an apostle and the other apostles that were legitimate apostles, we have as our ambition, we have as the motivation, we have as our driving force, we have as our ultimate desire. That's what he's talking about. Deep in the soul. What drives you, Paul? Why do you do what you do? Is it out of fear? Because God might not accept you? And send you to hell. No. We have as our ambition, conducting ourselves in everything that we do, whether at home or absent, whether at home here on earth in his physical body or absent even when I die and go to heaven. 
Same holds true. No matter where I am, because I'm a believer, because I know God, my ambition is in pleasing God. Everything I do is driven by that fact. I want to please God in everything that I do. That's awesome. Doesn't that help? That, this is going to be liberating and freeing for us in our decision making. Totally. Because this, you know what? This really is going to help us in the gray areas of life. The gray areas of life. We've got the biblical mandates. We've got the black and white scriptural commands and things we shouldn't do. And then there are things that, well, it's kind of fuzzy or it's a little gray. So what do I do? Here's where you go. You start asking these questions. Uh, should I choose this college? First question, does it please the Lord? Should I go here? Should I go to this party? Should I associate with this person? Should I take up this activity? Should I choose this career? Should I move to this location? I mean, just it's going to apply to every area of life. As a parent, as a spouse, as a child in a home, as a collegiate, as an older person, in your career, everywhere, the first question you should be asking as a Christian is, does this please the Lord? Is this going to please God? Contrast that with Dr. Laura. Now, Dr. Laura, she's very well-known on the radio, radio counselor. And actually, many times, or probably most of the time, she says very moral, correct things. And that's because, number one, she's a, uh, an Orthodox committed Jew. So she's totally committed to the Old Testament scriptures. And so she has a scriptural mindset and is a monotheist and believes in Yahweh. So that informs her thinking and counsel many times. So that's why many times you listen to Dr. Laura, if you do, you say, oh, that sounds pretty good. But she's not a Christian, so she doesn't have all the answers. So, But she's going to be right sometimes. They say even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? <laughs> now, Dr. Laura's right probably more than twice a day because of her morality that she gleans from Scripture. But every probably 99.9% of the callers who call Dr. Laura and ask her for advice and hang up the telephone, uh, almost all of them at the end of the conversation, are going to try to do and follow through on the decision they want to make to do what? Based on what? By pleasing Dr. Laura. That's what it's all about. I'm going to ask Dr. Laura advice. I'm going to listen to what she has to say. And she's going to haggle with me, change my mind and convince me. And now I'm going to make my decision based on pleasing Dr. Laura. Almost 100% of the time, that is the motive for the decision that was made. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's not the right thing to do. But the motivation for decision-making is, who am I trying to please? I'm going to please Dr. Laura. Otherwise, she'll get mad at me on the the radio. Well, for the Christian, it's not pleasing Dr. Laura or any other human, not even a biblical counselor. It's pleasing who? It's pleasing God. It's pleasing a scripture, right? How do you please God? One word. What pleases God? Obedience. I don't care any way you delineate it. Obedience pleases God. And by the way, this phrase, pleasing to the Lord, that phrase, the word uh, pleasing to the Lord and also trying to learn, trying to discern, trying to approve, trying to approve the things that please the Lord. Many times that's used in conjunction with the will of God in other passages. So the way you please God is to do the will of God. The way you please God is to obey God. Well, what's the will of God? The will of God is in the Scripture. The will of God is in the Bible. The will of God is to do what God wants. What does God want? God told us what He wants in the Scripture. It's there. Did you know there are many phrases in the New Testament, that say, this is the will of God. It's amazing how many Christians scratch their head and say, you know, I don't know what the will of God is. Well, open your Bible and read it. This is the will of God. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's the will of God. First Thessalonians 5. This is the will of God. In everything, give thanks. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. 
Being saved is the will of God. Being saved pleases God. Abstaining from sexual immorality pleases God. Being thankful pleases God. And it comes from the Scripture. That's how we know we can find out how to please God. This is His mind. This is His Word to us. So everything is filtered through the grid of Scripture and through prayer as we try to make that decision, as we ask the question, does this please God? Is this the right decision or action? It's all about pleasing God. Let's go ahead and look at the roadblocks to pleasing the Lord because it's not always easy to please the Lord. As a matter of fact, we are going to fail, aren't we? Even as Christians, we are going to fail. We are going to sin. We will not be perfect. We're not going to pull it off 100% like Jesus did. So that's why we need to keep seeking His wisdom, asking for His help, depending upon His mercy, asking for His grace, ongoingly confessing our sins to Him. But there's going to be roadblocks along the way to pleasing God and making right decisions. Let's look at A through E roadblocks that keep us from pleasing the Lord, making the right decisions and actions in life. Uh, Roadblock number one. This is huge. And that is pleasing self. We are bent on pleasing self, aren't we? We're just egocentric by nature. We are narcissistic from birth. It's all about me, me, me. Me, myself, and I. Just the three of us. What I want. It's all about me. From the time we wake up in the morning till the time we go to bed. I'm brushing my teeth, combing my hair, taking a shower so I don't stink. It's all about me, me, me. Pleasing self. You don't need to go to Judges, but in Judges 14, if you want to see a life lived by somebody, even though they were a believer that was self-oriented, that was the life of the great judge, Samson. He just made some really stupid mistakes, and a lot of that was based on self-centered thinking. You don't need to go there, but it's a funny story. He had a problem with women. He didn't stay committed to the first woman that he ever got married to. He had many women in his life. It was sin. It was wrong. God forgave him. He's in heaven, but he's a good example for us. And in Judges 14, it tells this story where he went out where he wasn't supposed to be going, looking at women he shouldn't be looking at, non-Jews, Saw a girl there, fell in lust with her. Not in love with her, he fell in lust with her based on what she looked like because he didn't even know her. And he went to his mommy and daddy. He's a grown man. Mommy, daddy, get her for my wife. And the reason in the scripture says, because she looks good to me. (laughs) The New American Standard says that. Get her because she looks good to me. You talk about self-centered, selfish, wrong thinking, pleasing self. That woman got Samson in trouble. So pleasing self is a roadblock. Uh, B, pleasing others. Pleasing others. Oh, I can't do this, even though it's the right thing, because that might offend this person. Or I can't do this and say this, even though it's the right thing and what God wants, because it might hurt that person's feelings. Or I can't do this, even though it's biblical, because they might not want to hang around me anymore. Or I might not be accepted by them. That's called pleasing others. Pleasing others out of embarrassment, shame, wanting acceptance, Fear of their reaction. The Bible calls this the fear of man. Are you driven by the fear of God or the fear of man? That's what it comes down to. Pleasing others. Paul is great. He was fearless. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, 4, 16, and 2, 11. What happened was uh, he was mad at the Galatians. He planted that church. He planted that church, pastored that church, trained up the leadership of that church, went away. That church uh, had some people sneak in there and pollute the church and distort the church. And they were thinking wrong now. And Paul heard of it, caught wind of it. He, got, he went mad. He rebuked them. He was upset with them. But they were believers. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he called them foolish Galatians. What are you doing? Christ saved you. What do you think you're doing? Knock it off. Hard words. He loved them, though. And in Galatians 1.10, um, he says this. I know I'm talking pretty tough. I know I'm being pretty stern. I know I'm hurting somebody's feelings. And I'm stepping on somebody's toes. 
but the reason I'm doing this, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? You know, the truth hurts sometimes, doesn't it? Am I to fear man or fear God? Or am I striving to please men? Am I to be a man pleaser and not tell you the truth so that I don't hurt your feelings? This is Paul. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Wow. That is not politically correct. Sometimes that does not win friends and influence people. And then enforce it. The same book. It says that the same Galatians. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Uh, and then he goes on in chapter 2 where he had to confront the Apostle Peter because Peter was being a hypocrite. Peter was being too faithful. The Apostle Peter, the head Apostle, Pope Peter, got involved in public hypocrisy in front of the whole church. He was eating with Gentile believers and buddy-buddy with them. And then when some Jews came along who didn't like Gentiles, he started telling Peter, you can't be, what are you doing hanging out with these Gentiles? They're dirty. They have the cooties, Peter. Peter caved. And decide, oh, oh yeah, oh, I can't eat with the Gentiles anymore, even though they were Christians and fellow believers. And he said, oh, you, you, I can't eat with you. You're no good. Paul heard about that. That was hypocritical. That was two-faced. That was wrong. And it says Peter was rebuked by the Apostle Paul to the face. And you know what? In public for his hypocrisy and his lack of love. So are we out to please others? I hope not, because if it is, it's going to be a roadblock to pleasing the Lord. And the letter C, we seek to please the Lord. But one of the roadblocks is, let us see, ignorance of God's Word, right? If you don't know the Word, this is how you found, find out how you please God, right? Obeying God based on what He wants, what He says. And in order to know what He says and what He wants, you have to know the Bible. Absolutely. It's a prerequisite. So if you're ignorant of Scripture, it's probably going to derail you along the way in the decision-making process and pleasing God. If you're ignorant, that's why we have got to continually be in Scripture. Studying Scripture, listening to the teaching of Scripture, sharing Scripture, singing songs about Scripture, letting the Word of Christ dwell in your heart, live at home in your heart, says Colossians, on a regular basis so we know what God wants and expects so that we can make decisions to please Him. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, and Tim read it earlier, you need to, Christian, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's present tense. It's an ongoing process. You need to continually renew your mind. You need to change your thinking and Fill it up with biblical data so you can make biblical decisions that please God. Transform your mind. You need to think right. And it's present tense, ongoing process. Continue to, you need to be brainwashed with what? With Scripture, with the truth of God. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. By filling it up with God's truth. Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. You've got to have a regular intake of the Word of God. If you're going weeks, actually if you're going days and weeks, and even months without an intake of biblical truth, then you're going you're gonna to get dry. You're going to be dulled in your thinking. You're not going to be able to think straight about what God wants and what pleases Him. You cannot be ignorant of God's Word. You've got to take it in. Uh, D, another roadblock. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is a roadblock to pleasing the Lord. God wants us to pray to Him. It's a command. He wants us to talk to Him, consult with Him. And here we are making decisions all the time without ever consulting God. Think about it. We do that all the time. And yet the Bible says over and over, talk to God before you make your decisions in life. Doesn't it? Do not lean on your own understanding. But in everything, acknowledge Him. And if you do, He will make your path straight. Commit everything to the Lord. That's what the Proverbs say. 
Do not lean on your own understanding, but in everything acknowledge Him. In everything pray to Him. In everything talk to Him. In everything ask His advice. In everything ask for God's wisdom in your decision. That's what that verse means. In everything. And if you do, God will lead you in the right direction. I put as a reference there uh, Joshua 10, but actually it starts in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 14. We're not going to turn there, but Joshua was going in to take over the promised land, which God promised to give them. And before he went in, God said, Okay, Joshua, whatever you do, when you go in there, kick all the Canaanites out. They're bad guys. They will be like termites in your midst if you allow them to live. Get them out. And Joshua goes in, takes over a couple cities. He gets to one town. And then some people called the Gibeonites, who were Canaanites, uh, dressed up, made a ploy, tried to trick Joshua, came up to Joshua and said, Oh, we are from a land far, far, far away. We're not Canaanites. And we heard what you're doing to the Canaanites. And hey, we'd like to be your friend. Can we be your friend, please? Can we, huh? Can we, huh? Can we? And Joshua said, Okay. Oops. And he got in huge trouble, and that continued to haunt Israel for many years. It poisoned the nation of Israel. It undermined the nation of Israel because he allowed Canaanites into the land, even though they were lying. And that passage in, in Joshua 9 specifically says uh, this happened, and it was terribly because Joshua did not seek counsel from the Lord. And when God replaced Moses with Joshua, God specifically told Moses, here is your successor, Joshua. Make sure you get it through Joshua's thick head that is the leader. Every time he leads you guys out of the camp into a new place, he needs to go to the high priest and seek counsel from the Lord. Numbers 27, 21. And Joshua said, okay. Oops, forgot. Prayerlessness. We read 2 Chronicles 7:14. If we would just pray and humble ourselves, God will do great things. He'll give us wisdom. When we don't, it circumvents and short circuits what God wants to do in our life and it does not please Him. A prayerless Christian does not please God. A prayerless church does not please God. Does GBF want to please God? I hope so. That we need to be praying people. I'm saying that first and foremost to myself. And then finally, E, roadblock to pleasing the Lord, is apathy becoming cold and dry. Cold and dry. You know, the reason this is so important is because a priority in pleasing the Lord, it all has to do with a relationship. And a relationship with another person is dynamic, isn't it? It's a relationship. And if you become apathetic, cold and dry, aloof, at a distance, unemotional, impersonal, guarded, at a distance, you're cutting off your relationship with Almighty God in an ongoing way. And you become cold and dry. I mean, just think about it. I mean, I, I think about my own self and I'm shamed. When I first became a Christian, I was so excited. I was talking to God all the time, praying to God all the time, worshiping God openly with exuberance when I first got saved. I was liberated. I was free. This newfound personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Twenty years later, uh, kind of humdrum. God's a lot of low times, kind of depressed. Uh, it's not as uh, exuberant and wonderful as it used to be. How come I don't feel, I don't have the emotion anymore? Where'd it go? And many times I am just apathetic, downright apathetic. So we have to guard against that. And we have to be conscious about talking. He is, he is our Savior. We should be talking to Him all throughout the day. Lord Jesus, help me here. God, thank You for this. All throughout the day. It's a dynamic, ongoing, personal relationship. We need to be intimate with our Savior. And if we don't, we could end up like this church and these professing believers in Revelation. And I'll just read the verses. They're scary. Uh, Jesus, the judge, said to the church at Laodicea that the apostles started this church came Christians 40 years later 
Jesus said, some of you guys, you're stagnant. This is not good. You are not dynamic. You're not emphasizing the personal element of a relationship with God and Jesus anymore. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. You are apathetic. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were. And because of it, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Wow. That's a warning from Jesus to His church to not be apathetic, but to take our personal relationship with Christ seriously in everything that we do, seeking to please Him as our God, as our Creator, and as our Savior. Well, let's go ahead and pray. If you could bow your head with me and close your eyes and we'll ask God's blessing on today. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for the day that it is, the beautiful weather we have, uh, a great location to meet, the people that you brought here, uh, visitors you brought to us. Uh, It's Father's Day, so there's much to be thankful for and celebrate. And God, thank you for your word. You speak to us very clearly through it. And God, I just pray that the one thing that we take away from your word today is that we will be driven and motivated And all that we do by trying to please you and that we look to the scriptures to see what pleases you. And as a result, God, I just pray that it gives us more of an abundant life in our relationship with you. May your hand of blessing continue to be upon us and your hand of protection as well. Pray now that you would go before us with your Holy Spirit as we commit this day to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.